Well, we are in our second of, of three sermons in John chapter 9. We had our first sermon beginning John chapter 9 uh, last week. And that was really like the overarching theme of John chapter 9, where this man who has been blind his whole life is miraculously healed. And it is a beautiful picture of everything that Jesus has been teaching on, particularly the new birth through the Gospel of John, so that this man who was in uh, blindness is representative of all of us who are spiritually blind, so much so that it is like we are dead And it takes nothing other than the intervention of Christ himself to give sight to this man. And likewise, it takes nothing other than God himself to intervene in our lives by the work of his spirit to illuminate us so that like this man, we open our eyes and we see Christ in all of his glory and majesty. Uh, That is the overarching picture today. We will be looking at uh, the Pharisees, mostly the interaction of this group of religious leaders that interrogate this man. Next week, we'll finish finish it off by looking at his uh, final response, the man who was healed of his blindness, which is probably the climax of the story where finally he uh, sees Christ. He sees the son of man before him and he says, I believe and he worships him. Today, we're going to focus perhaps not so much a depressing theme, but really more of the theme of looking at the Pharisees and how this is actually uh, as much, this story is as much of a judgment upon uh, God's people Israel, specifically in the, the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the Jews. It's as much a rebuke upon the Jewish leaders as it is a beautiful picture of Christ. Redemption. We know that because look at the very end of John chapter 9 uh, from verse 39. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Now the Pharisees hear him and they say, oh, we blind as well. And Jesus says, well, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But it's precisely because you claim that you can see that you're guilty. In a sense, he's saying you, you have to become blind. Just like we see in the Apostle Paul in his conversion, the Pharisee of Pharisees actually has to become blind, blinded by Christ so that he can then truly see him. The Pharisees must become blind so that they can see. For at the moment, they are clearly looking simply with natural eyes. And they and everyone else, for that matter, all of mankind must see Christ, not with natural eyes, but with the eyes of faith. They must have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they may see with clarity the Christ of their salvation. So today we will look at the judgment aspect of this story upon the Jews, specifically looking at the the danger of dead religion that we see in the Pharisees. And just a bit of housekeeping before we read the, the passage. For those who aren't aware, uh, the way John uses Jews is typically referring to the Jewish religious leaders. And you'll notice that through this passage, it almost seems like Pharisees and Jews are interchangeable. They're not quite interchangeable. Every Pharisee was most certainly a Jewish leader, but not every Jewish leader was a Pharisee. But for all intents and purposes here, the Pharisees and Jews are, are, are all part of this sort of one group that is very antagonistic toward Jesus, very hostile to Jesus and very uh, far removed from a heart that is truly for Yahweh, their God. So let's look at the passage and then we will work 
our way through looking at some of these dangers of dead religion. So from verse 13, this is, of course, after the man has been miraculously healed and he sees they, that is the the crowd of Jews there, they, from verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. This is God's word. Now, there are a number of uh, ways that we can apply this to ourselves today, looking at the dangers of dead religion. Probably what is uh, important to say at the beginning is that we, of course, can't sit here uh, if we're going to insert ourselves in this story and assume that we are uh, the man who has been healed of his blindness and everyone else around us is probably a Pharisee and there's nothing wrong with us. We should take this as a moment to beware of the things that influenced the Pharisees of their dead religion and learn from this example. And the reason we should be aware of this is because uh, I believe there is a danger of having a little inner Pharisee in all of us, mainly because uh, all of the world is full of Pharisaic mindsets from inside the church and outside of the church. And the core of the modern inner Pharisee, the core of their Uh, disposition is where you elevate every issue, rule, or opinion that you consider important to a place where others must conform to that. 
And if they do not conform to every opinion, thought and idea that you have, then they are cast out. Just as we see this man in verse 34, he is cast out of the synagogue. And of course, uh, modern Pharisees love to cancel uh, people out of society if they do not subscribe to whatever their fad is. We see this within the church where, of course, the stereotypical idea is you have sort of modern Pharisees from a fundamentalist uh, church from a more conservative background where if someone doesn't wear a suit to the Sunday gathering, then they should probably be questioning their salvation, things like that. Or we see it from uh, the other end of the spectrum in liberal churches where uh, if you hold a traditional view on male headship, then you are just a patriarchal chauvinist and you're not worth the chair that you sit on. And you're cast out of that understanding of Christianity. We see the Pharisee mindset in wider society. If we step outside of the church, we see it in uh, the leftists who excommunicate anyone who doesn't hold to their view of gender and sexuality. We see it from right-wingers for, uh, who see anyone who uh, is vaccinated as probably anti-freedom and most likely a communist. And that's just the understanding that you have. We like to really box people in. We see it in secular society in general, where if you believe that the world was created by a single God about six to 10,000 years ago, over a period of six days, then you are a dinosaur. You're ridiculous. Why would you hold to that? You're, you're cast out. You're cast out of opportunities for dialogue and conversation. You're just clearly subscribing to some outdated understanding of the Bible. So there are Pharisees everywhere who seek to cast out those who do not conform to their man-made beliefs. And the common theme wherever we see the Pharisee mindset is, of course, a stubborn and prideful heart. A stubborn and prideful heart that uh, simply does not allow other views uh, to come in. It never humbles itself before others. This kind of mindset, it is stubborn and prideful. So the Pharisee mindset manifests in many different ways and remains something we ought to be very aware of. And therefore, there are many lessons that we can learn from what we see in the Pharisees as they approach this man who has just been miraculously healed of his blindness, and now he is interrogated. So let's look at four marks of dead religion of the Pharisees and contextualize them for ourselves and then finish with two uh, what we might call safeguards for us. So the first mark of dead religion is a religion that keeps God at arm's length rather than drawing near. A religion that actually keeps God at arm's length that doesn't want him to be so involved in your life so you don't draw near to him. So look from verse 13. From verse 13, we see the crowd bring uh, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, this was common practice. When something miraculous like this happens, you, of course, want to take it to the people who are going to be able to give a comment on it. It's almost the equivalent of taking something to the modern media or some sort of social commentator. You take this matter to the Pharisees so that they can give their judgment on it. So there's not necessarily any malice in it. It's just what you would have done. And in verse 14, a key phrase here is we see that this happened on the Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. This is very similar to John chapter 5. We went through a few months ago 
where Jesus heals the, the invalid of 38 years. And he heals him, and it was on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees, again, have a go at this invalid after he's just been healed of 38 years of being a, a paralytic. And immediately he's walking and they're hounding him down as to why are you carrying your mat? So the fact that this happens on a Sabbath actually reveals a lot about the Pharisees' approach to God. So after the Pharisees ask the man how he was healed, in verse 16, the Pharisees say, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath had become something so incredibly strict at that time, uh, full of various laws that are not found in Scripture, uh, extra-biblical laws that the Jews had made up, uh, things like smelling a flower was forbidden on the Sabbath because you were not supposed to reap, and if you were going to smell a flower, it could have looked like you were reaping, or children weren't allowed to climb uh, a tree because you could break a branch, and then that would also look like reaping. It's possible here that the reason why the Pharisees think that Jesus is actually breaking the Sabbath is because you weren't allowed to knead like starting with a K, you weren't allowed to knead dough on the Sabbath. And Jesus does something that kind of looks like kneading. He makes mud clay. And so there's theories that perhaps they think that he's actually breaking the Sabbath by kneading the mud clay and putting it together on this man. Now, on both occasions in the Gospel of John where Jesus heals on the Sabbath, the Jews we see are completely unwilling to accept the healing I mean, in just blind ignorance, completely unwilling to accept the healing because it seemed to them that he had violated the Sabbath. That's what it seemed like. Their approach to God's law had become so focused upon keeping the law as an end. Their approach had become so focused upon keeping the law as an end that they had lost sight of the goal of God's law. And we understand the goal of God's law of his gracious instruction to his people was actually that they would reflect his character and have intimacy with him. So in Deuteronomy 4, where uh, Moses is instructing the second generation to keep God's law and to keep his requirements, Moses says to the people, make sure you keep God's requirements, keep all of his statutes and his commandments. And he says, and this will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of all of the peoples of the nations. They will look on and see you walking in obedience to Yahweh. And they will say, wow, what a wise and understanding people, a people who have a God so near to him. That's the point. In, 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 as they walk in obedience to him, they are meant to be reflecting his perfect character because a lot of God's laws reflect pure wisdom. They are meant to be walking in obedience to him so that they would reflect his character. And people would say, wow, what kind of people has a God so near to them, a, a God who is so gracious and so intimate with his people? The problem with the Jews over time is that they had disconnected the law from a desire to be near God and to honor him, and they simply served the law as an end in itself. And when this is your religion, you end up conforming your life to a list of do's and don'ts. You end up grounding your security with God in your ability to keep certain requirements. And this is actually keeping God at arm's length. Let me explain how. This, this, this is actually keeping, it go keeping God at arm's length, because if your life is about a list of do's and don'ts, then you can feel secure 
in who you are and your right standing before God based on whether or not you've kept the list. And if you feel secure because of your ability to keep the list, then you don't need God anymore. You simply don't need him. You can keep him at God. You can keep God at arm's length. It's like you're subconsciously paying God off. You're walking in obedience and then he can't ask too much of you. So your religion really is dead and worthless. And this is part of what was at the core of the Pharisees. They were whitewashed tombs. They looked kind of clean on the outside, but inward they were full of dead people's bones, Jesus says. They were hypocrites. They were keeping God at arm's length because to draw near to God requires absolute humility and absolute humility is something that the Jewish leaders clearly do not have. They are prideful and stubborn in their approach. Now, as we apply this to ourselves, how easy it is for us to reduce following Jesus down to a list of do's and don'ts. This is pervasive in the modern church where your understanding of Christianity is that you attend church or you go to a a youth group, or you read your Bible, you don't swear, you try not to have sex before marriage, you just keep this sort of moral standard. And when you do these things, it's like you don't really need God anymore because you're fulfilling your end of the deal. There is no desperation for God. There is no deep need for His help because you're upholding your end of the deal. A prideful heart sees this as a a sort of transaction that tries to fulfill the minimum requirement to then keep their life. See, the difference is in your approach, because of course, what I'm not saying is forget about going to church and forget about reading your Bible. Of course, we want to do these things and do them increasingly as God's ordinary means of grace. We want to walk in them. That is what he has said. But of course, we need to recognize our approach to these things, a self preserving approach, which is what the Pharisees were doing, reduces your right standing with God down to a list of things that are achievable for you to control. They're achievable for you to do, and therefore you keep control. You preserve your life. In contrast to that, a God-preserving approach to God's requirements firstly knows that your right standing with God could never come about by your ability to keep any requirements, for God's requirements are too impossibly high for us to keep in and of ourselves. So our right standing with God is, of course, based upon Christ's complete ability to keep God's law, to provide a righteousness that we could never possess in and of ourselves. Nevertheless, by faith in Jesus Christ and His perfect life, we receive a righteousness that becomes our very own because we receive his perfect record. Our sin is placed upon him. His righteousness is given to us as we are in Christ. That is our right standing. That's the first aspect. But secondly, in our approach to God's requirements, based off that foundation, our desire to keep God's requirements becomes about His glory, becomes about reflecting His wisdom and His perfect character. We want to honor Him. We want to do what pleases Him because we have His pleasure upon us. We want a deeper communion with Him. And we realize that as we walk in the ways that He has set before us, that is how we experience a wonderful intimacy with our God. So the desire for obedience becomes about a selfless desire for His glory rather than what we see in the Pharisees, which is a selfish, vain glory. It's an empty glory. They are self-seeking. Now, that's the first danger of dead religion, where you actually keep God at arm's length. 
rather than drawing near. The second danger is that because of a disconnection to God, your attempts to honor him actually become dishonoring. Attempts to honor God become dishonoring to him. As we move on in the interrogation from from verse 18, the Jews don't believe that he has uh, been blind and received his sight. So they ask the parents to come. Now we'll look more at the parents response next week when we trace the uh, sort of trajectory of this blind man and his parents and all these interactions from their point of view. Today, we're focusing upon the Pharisees. So the parents uh, managed to dodge the question. Uh, they answer two of the questions. They leave the third one to basically say, well, why don't you just ask him? He's of age. Just leave us alone effectively. So in verse 24, the Pharisees then say back to the blind man, they interrogate him. They say, give glory to God which is kind of a way of saying, speak honestly before God. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, see the irony in this. They, they are asking the man to speak honestly before God. So they say, give glory to God, which is effectively like them saying, give glory to God. Say that this man, Jesus, who actually is God, didn't do it. Don't give him the glory. Give glory to God, not to Jesus, who is God. Of course, they're unaware of this, but I think that's part of the irony in what's going on. Through their dead religion, they have become so disconnected to God that they are unwilling to give glory to whom it is due. So in their misguided attempts to honor God, they actually dishonor him in extreme fashion. And this was not uncommon for the Jewish people. If you look at the story of the people of Israel, Think of passages like Isaiah 29, where God rebukes his people and he says through the prophet Isaiah about his people Israel, this people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment merely taught by men. And that's what Jesus would actually quote from his very lips, that this people draw near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, notice in this that the Israelites didn't stop trying to honor God. They're drawing near with their mouth. They're they're honoring him with their lips. They assume that they are attributing glory to Yahweh. And yet it is completely misguided. It is coming from cold and dead hearts. And so it's simply lip service to God. He is not pleased in any way. In Isaiah chapter 1, he actually uh, says, I'll block my ears to your prayers. I'm sick of your sacrifices that are always before me. Your hearts are not hearts that are for me. And how easy it is for this to creep into our lives. A stubborn heart that assumes it is giving honor and glory to God, but it is doing just the opposite, drawing near to God with our mouths while we are singing and yet our hearts are lusting over the world. We see it in various aspects in the church. We think of attempting uh, to honor God by perhaps rebuking a, a young visitor for wearing inappropriate clothing without failing to realize the distinction. Now, I'm clearly not advocating for inappropriate clothing, but we, of course, recognize the difference as per 1 Corinthians 5 of someone who is not actually following Jesus and those who are and those who become detached from a heart that is for the Lord end up assuming they're giving honor to God, but really they are dishonoring him. 
All of these really are symptoms of a heart that has become disconnected from a humble intimacy with Christ. That is at the core of this, a heart that has become disconnected from a humble intimacy with Christ. And our attempts to honor the Lord will only ever remain honorable when they are done from hearts that are humble and completely devoted to Christ, from a genuine humility in all that we do. So that is the second danger there where as a disconnection resulting from a disconnection from God, our attempts to honor him become dishonorable. There is no humility. Thirdly, the third danger, establishing an identity based upon man as opposed to a God-given identity. This is the third danger. So as the interrogation continues after their pronouncement in verse 24 and verse 26, they say to him, what did he do to you? That is, what, is Jesus, what did Jesus do to you? How did he open your eyes? The man explains again. And then they say in verse 28, they actually hurl insults at him. And they say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, the fact that they claim to be followers of Moses is not necessarily evidence of them following a man-made identity. But the Pharisees here demonstrate that they are bound to a man-made identity or a man-made tradition that has actually become unhinged from the teachings of Moses. Just like the, the 39 Sabbath laws that they had introduced as to how to keep the Sabbath, which is where you get things like uh, not smelling a flower because it looks too much like reaping. These are all things that they had introduced. And Jesus has already made clear to this people in chapter 5 that they are not following Moses because he says to them, if you followed Moses, you would follow me because Moses wrote of me and you're clearly not following him because you're dishonoring me. If you genuinely followed Moses, you would know that I am the prophet that he spoke of. You would know that I am the fulfillment of, of the law that he spoke of. You would know that I am the promised Messiah. The problem was that they had developed an identity that was man-made rather than God-given. Their identity became tied to being keepers of the Mosaic law. That's how they saw themselves. The holders of truth, the keepers of the Mosaic law. And because their hearts had become hard toward God, their keeping of the law was not for God's sake, it was for self's sake. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 23 when he rebukes them and says they love to do their deeds before others. They love to have the best seats in the marketplace. They love to have their phylacteries broad, which are these boxes of scriptures. Basically, the bigger they had it, it was like saying, I know all of these scriptures, these wonderful scriptures, and I know them all. I'm the holder of truth. They had established an identity that was really based upon man rather than upon God. And how dangerous it is for us to develop a man-made identity. How dangerous it is for us as a community to actually establish an identity as a Reformed Baptist over a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we are unashamedly a Reformed Baptist church because that's the, the clearest theological lens we see in Scripture, but we're not establishing an identity based around being a Reformed Baptist. We're establishing an identity based around being followers of Jesus Christ. There is a great danger of being turned inward by forming a man-made identity so that all of a sudden we're actually holding other Christians to a standard that the Bible simply doesn't give. 
like we hold to the regulative principle or maybe we become a, a, a psalm-only church and so we're immediately skeptical of any other church that doesn't exclusively sing the psalms and we begin holding them to a level that Scripture doesn't just clearly speak on. So we have to be wary of a man-made identity. It can turn us inward. It can also turn us outward. As we think about this across the spectrum of churches, man-made identities can turn a church outward to their detriment. You think of churches that perhaps do a lot of things in the community. They run a, a food stall for people. They, they have a Christmas pageant every year. They have a, a good standing in the community. So their community praises them. And all of a sudden they begin speaking a bit more softly on doctrines that won't please the masses because they have a, a wonderful right standing in their community. They no longer hold Christians to the standards of the Bible because really the most important thing is just to have a good reputation in the community. And it's just the same thing, whether it turns you inward or outward, you develop an identity that is based upon man rather than based upon God. And our identity is always established and secured on the rock of Jesus Christ. So that whether we are looking internally or outwardly, if we're looking internally, we are conforming ourselves to Christ based off the pattern of Scripture. If we're looking externally at our place in the community, we realize we are representing Christ, which means we must be representing Him according to Scripture as faithfully as we possibly can. Everything about who we are and what we do is determined by Christ and His Word. Fourthly, our last danger, and then we will look through some safeguards, developing an unteachable and obstinate heart. An unteachable and obstinate heart. This is very clear throughout the story here with the Pharisees. Uh, we see it especially in verse 34, where the Pharisees say to the man, you were born in utter sin. It's like they are making the same assumption that the disciples made earlier on, where they assume that his sin is because, uh, sorry, his condition is because of a gross sin within him. And so they just pronounce this upon him. Well, you were born in utter sin. You've been blind from birth. Who cares what you think? Are you going to teach us? You're a shameful man. And this man, interestingly, uh, employs the logic of looking at the incredible miracle Jesus has done and concluding that, well, anyone not sent from God surely couldn't have done such a thing. It seems like this man must have been sent from God. He's, no one has ever heard of anyone opening the eyes of a man born blind. And so they say, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? They pridefully say, you don't have anything to teach us. They are so steeped in their dead religion that they are absolutely unwilling to consider the fact that perhaps this man, who is a walking miracle, might just have encountered someone divine. Completely unwilling to accept that. And there is a great danger for us in having an unteachable heart that refuses to listen to anyone outside of our comfort zone. James, the... The author in his letter tells us in chapter 317 that wisdom that comes from above, godly wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and then he says it's open to reason. The word is literally persuadable. That's wisdom that comes from above where you are actually persuadable. You're not obstinate. You actually can conceive that perhaps you could be wrong about something. And that's wisdom 
that comes from above. So are you open to being persuaded? And this is most certainly not about losing conviction. Absolutely not. We must have strong conviction, but this is about a heart of humility that is open to reason. A cold heart that is detached from humble communion with God is like standing in a place where no one wants to be with concrete setting around your feet. You become stuck in your ways, completely obstinate. And we see here from the Pharisees that they are completely unwilling to consider that Jesus may indeed be sent from God. Now, these are the four dangers of dead religion. But let's look now at how we can best protect ourselves from these things with just two simple applications uh, as we finish. And then we will save the beautiful climax of this, of the man's faith for next week. So as we think about these dangers of dead religion, how is it that we can best protect ourselves from these things? Firstly, be a true reformer. Be a true reformer. Now, we align ourselves with a reformed and baptistic faith. And at the heart of the Reformation, which if you're not aware, was a significant event about 500 years ago where uh, the scriptures and the true faith became recovered from a corrupt uh, Catholic church. And the Reformation had this beautiful cry, ad fontes, which was a Latin term that meant back to the source. They desired to go back to the source. So the reformers broke the shackles of the man-made tradition of the Catholic Church that was holding people hostage. And they had a desire to understand Scripture. They had a desire for the Word to be taught, for the Word to be given into the languages and the hands of every single person because the, the key thing was going back to the source of Scriptures, going back to the original languages so that we can rightly understand the Word of God and recover the beautiful doctrines of the Reformation, like being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, the heart of reformed theology, and, and we, of course, in our theological camp like to use the word reformed, the heart of being reformed is constantly reforming yourself back to the source, not simply going along with a reformed tradition, though you think, well, if someone is rightly reformed, then they'll be back to the source and they will continue in the beautiful uh, doctrine we call reformed theology. But the heart of it is really to come back to the source, to constantly be reforming ourselves back upon Scripture. And because in Scripture we are led to Christ, we will be conforming ourselves to the pattern of Christ. So we must keep the heart of the Reformation, which means that we go back to the source. We have a God-given identity rather than man-made identity. We, we reject man-made identities. We constantly reform ourselves back to the source, back to the source of Scripture, back to the Christ of our salvation. Secondly and lastly, we must be confronted with our sin and saturated with the love of God. In Ephesians 5, beginning actually from the last verse of Ephesians 4, Paul says, he gives these instructions to the church and he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Now that's the opposite of the Pharisees who are hard-hearted. Paul is saying, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted. 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the basis of your tender heart, the basis, the foundation for our tender hearts is the reality that we have been forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. That's the reality. To know the forgiveness of God. And to know the forgiveness of God, we of course need to understand what we've been forgiven of. The gross sin that has infected us. How we have offended the living God. And this is why we must come back to the cross, which we will uh, do as we come to the Lord's Supper shortly. We must come back to the cross with a right perspective because the cross shows us how grotesque and offensive our sin is. Think about it. The very fact that God had to send his son to die such an excruciating and humiliating death as that surely shows that God hates sin. He hates it. Our sin caused the perfect, innocent Son of God to have to suffer such a death as this. Now, as you daily reflect upon that, as you reflect upon your sin, as you reflect upon the offense before God, then humility must follow. Your sin must be brought to the surface. It must occur. And where your sin is brought to the surface, you simply cannot remain prideful in dead religion. You can't do it. From that place of humility, in that place of humility, where we realize uh, the huge weight of our sin, and I think this is something that we forget about so much, and I was just listening to a sermon recently of, of the preacher talking about the reality that in heaven we will not be able to sin anymore. It's not as though we're, we're simply free from sin, but we'll actually be incapable of sinning. And is that good news? Because I think for most of us it's kind of like, oh... I guess so. I think it's because we simply do not have a right view of sin, of how offensive it is, how it defames the honor of God. And the reality is that because of Christ's redeeming work, we are free from the penalty of sin now, but we will be free from the effects of sin in the new heavens and new earth, so much so that we will be incapable of sin. We will only be able to honor the Lord. We will only be able to do what pleases Him. And what a beautiful hope that is. Now, on this side of heaven, we must continue to reflect upon our sin. But we, of course, don't leave it there because there is good news. That would be bad news if we are simply called to reflect upon how horrible our sin is. As we reflect upon that and we see the uh, wrath of God against sin... We then lay our sins at the cross, knowing that his blood has cleansed us from all sin, knowing that as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. And in that place of humility, we relish in the fact that we have been forgiven of our sin. We relish in the fact that we are cleansed of that sin. And this is the foundation of our identity. Notice back to Ephesians 5, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up 
for us. That's the basis. The only way we can imitate God, the only way we can truly be followers of Jesus Christ, the only way we can be kind and tender-hearted is if we are daily reflecting upon the reality that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He endured the cross like we went over last week. He disregarded the shame and the humiliation and he persevered so that we who were wretched sinners could be cleansed of that sin and brought back to our Father, back to a reconciled place with God, to have peace with the living God. See, the opposite of a cold and dead religion is a warm and lively religion that will only ever remain while we are saturated with the love of God in Christ Jesus who took our sin upon himself and washed us clean and will present us before the Father as holy, blameless and above reproach. As we daily reflect upon that, as we weekly in the community of God's people reflect upon that, it is the best safeguard, the best antidote against a cold and dead religion. That is a warm and lively religion of a community of people who have recognized their sin, who are in practices of confessing their sin before brothers and sisters in Christ, and who are relishing in the reality that we have been forgiven of that by nothing other than faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ. What an exchange. Our wretched state for a state of righteousness a state of perfection in the eyes of God because he looks upon us and sees his perfect son.